When you think about God, does the thoughts that come to your mind exude joy or something else? When, when you ponder people that you know are Christians, does the word happiness come to mind or something else? When you think about the church, is, is the thought that comes to your mind celebration or something else? I'm sure we have, if we were to poll us as a congregation, we'd get a variety of responses. But sometimes I think the church has a reputation for being anything but exuding happiness and joy and celebration. But despite what we may have been told, and despite what we might think are the expectations, the kingdom of God has always been about celebration. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he sets up regular festivals every year on numerous occasions so that they can celebrate God and what he's done for them. It's not a coincidence that the first miracle Jesus performs is at a wedding feast. How many times in the Gospels do we, do we find Jesus being criticized because he's spending way too much time partying with people, in a sense? <laughs> hanging out at dinner parties. Hanging out with people who are having fun and wanting to learn and grow and understand. People that aren't, as t- aren't taking themselves and life as seriously as those criticizing Jesus think they should. And isn't it fascinating that when we get to John's revelation and he tries his best to describe what, what it's going to be like when the kingdom is brought in to all of its fulfillment. He says... It's like this huge wedding feast. And everyone is singing and playing instruments and dancing and celebrating. And this is the image that we get in this 47th Psalm that we read this morning. Over and over again, the psalmist is saying, celebrate, sing praises to God, rejoice, clap your hands, play instruments. Do everything in your power to celebrate God and who he is. Don't hold back. Do everything you can to celebrate God because the Lord our God has ascended his throne. This is prophetic picture. He has ascended his throne. He has established his kingdom and it's the greatest thing in the world. It, it sounds, the language here sounds a lot like what we find in 2 Samuel 6 when David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. 20 years it has been away from the city and he brings it back to Jerusalem. And they celebrate. And David dances and they sing and they play instruments. And the king is bringing the king's ark back to Jerusalem. And people celebrate. It's what happens when a king ascends. When a king enters. The best I can think about for us in this country is what happens when the president enters a space. If it's a formal occasion of some kind, the president enters, and if there's a band, they play Hail to the Chief, and everyone stands. It, 
when the president delivers the State of the Union address and he enters the, the, the chamber of the house, the, the speaker says, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. And everyone is off their feet and they cheer and they clap. And it doesn't matter if you're in his party or not. It doesn't matter if you agree with the president or not. It doesn't matter if you like the president or not. It's the president. You cheer. You clap. And they aren't making him now the president because they cheer and clap. They're cheering and clapping because he's the president. I can tell you, I've been to the chamber of the House of Representatives. And when I walked in, there was no standing ovation and there was no band playing. And I was actually pretty disappointed about that. No one even noticed I was there. They didn't pay any attention. But suppose when I walked in, they did start the band playing and someone grabbed me by the arms and drug me up front and everyone stood and cheered. Would I be right to assume that I'm, I must be the president of the United States and then realize it? Of course not. That would be a scary thought, wouldn't it? We are not in our praise of God making God the king. We are simply acknowledging what is the truth. He is the king of all the earth. And the question is, what is that? What kind of king is he? And the psalmist doesn't tell us a lot about what he is as the king, but he gives us a little glimpse. And he says, he has subdued the enemies of Israel, and he has established Israel as his people, given them their inheritance. Now, that's the kind of king we can get behind, right? The king who defeats our enemies, and the king who blesses us, and gives us rewards for being his people. He declares that we are his people, and, it, and it's awesome. And the people of Israel celebrate and declare that God is the great king because of what he has done for them and for what he's doing for them. He is the king. And we celebrate that. And the people of Israel sing this psalm with great joy because they know what God has done. He has subdued their enemies. And we celebrate as Christians because Christ has conquered death and the ultimate enemy. And we are his people. It's a great psalm to sing until you get to verse 9. And in verse 9, the author throws us a curve. He says in verse 9 that not only is God the king of Israel, not only has God subdued Israel's enemies, not only has God, has God rewarded his people, but he actually says all the nations of the earth will come and worship him. And that will not be something that we think of as a military battle. It's not as though God has his foot on their necks, holding them down, saying, you're going to be my servants? No, he says, they will come, the nobles of the nation, assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. They come to God just like the Israelites do. They come to God not to be his servants, who are subjugated to him, but they come to God as his people, as his children. He says that they belong to God. And that's not so much a word of power, that's a word of adoption. That's a word of welcoming, saying, I want you to be my people. I want you to come. I welcome you. I welcome you into my family. 
I want you to be my children. And the heart of this psalm is that God is the king that he says he is. And the king that he says he is, is the king who welcomes everyone into his kingdom. Those we want in his kingdom and those we wish weren't in his kingdom. All of them. He says, I'm welcoming you into my kingdom. You're invited to be a part of this. And the psalm is calling from us, how do we respond to that? How does that make us feel? I think sometimes that kind of bothers us. I think for Israel, this is a difficult psalm to sing. I don't know if they got together for hymn sings like we sometimes do. But if they did, they would be, I guess, psalm sings, not hymn sings. But they come together and, okay, who's got a request? Well, you know, Psalm 1's going to come up. Blessed uh, are the ones who follow in the ways of the Lord. Psalm 23 is going to come up. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever present and have help in time of trouble. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's in me, praise his holy name. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And they're singing, having a great time with his favorite psalms. And then a guy in the back says, I want to sing Psalm 47. What? Come on. I mean, that psalm's okay until we get to verse 9. If we just didn't have verse 9, it'd be all right. I mean, it's one thing to sing God is the great king. But for God to welcome our enemies, I don't think so. For God to crush our enemies, hey, I'm good with that. It is calling from us for a response. What do we do? And here's the, here's the thing that I'm discovering. The more I read this psalm and other, and you read about Jesus, what I'm finding is that in a sense, the DNA of God's people is that we celebrate God who is the king that he says he is. Not the king that we want him to be in our image. And it's often a big difference. God says, if you're going to be my people, then I want you to celebrate me. But you need to understand, celebrating me means that my heart becomes your heart. What's important to me becomes important to you. How I view the world is how I want you to view the world. And you are celebrating the fact that this is who I am. This is the kind of king I am. Even if it doesn't match up with the kind of king that you would like for me to be. And in our wrestling with coming to grips with that, sometimes as the church we give people the impression that God is not the kind of king that he says he is. Or we give people the impression that we wish God wasn't the king that he says he is. But he is. And if we are going to be God's people, it will mean that we come to the place where we can celebrate that God is this kind of king who welcomes all the nations to be his people. As I've read this psalm, I kept keep reading through this psalm, my mind kept going back to, to the story of the prodigal son that we read a minute ago. Here you have the young, younger son that, is, you know, he humiliates his father. He wastes all of his father's inheritance, that, that half that's his. And, and eventually he comes back. And the father welcomes him with open arms. And he says, let's throw a party. This is awesome. My son is back. 
It doesn't matter right now what he's done. He's just back. And when the older brother finds out about it, he is so mad, he just plops himself down on the, on the back porch step, folds his arms and says, I'm not going in. I'm not being a part of this. And the father humiliates himself by going out to his son and sits down beside him and says, what's up? And he says to him, in essence, I don't want you to be that kind of father. I, look, I'm the good son. Look what I've done. I stayed here. I didn't go off. I, I protected your inheritance. I didn't waste it. I have worked for you instead of abandoning you. I'm the good son. I ought to get better. So you either make a choice. Either you give me more than you're giving him or you give him less than you're giving me. But there's no way we should be treated the same. And the father says, but that's my heart. I don't love you any less. You're not any less my son because I'm welcoming this son back. You just need to know that you're both my loved children. There's enough love in me to love both of you more than you could ever imagine. But he struggles to accept that. And I think we do too. You know, often the world sees the church as judgmental and is pushing morals on them. And the reason people see us that way is because, quite frankly, sometimes we're judgmental and we're pushing morals on people. And we're saying to people, in essence, we'd love to have you know Christ, but not until you figure out some stuff in your life first. We forget God didn't put that kind of restraint on us. God didn't say to us, now look, I really want you to be a part of my family. But until you get this stuff figured out in your life, you you need to hold off. And when you get that figured out, then you come back and we'll talk. No. He says, you come to me. You come and you let me take care of that stuff. But just come. Come. Now, hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we don't care about truth. I'm just saying we care about truth the way God sees truth. As opposed to the ways we often see truth. And I'm not saying that we are apathetic about sin. That it doesn't matter what people do. That it doesn't matter how people live. That it doesn't matter any of, those, any of the things, the way that people live their lives. I'm not saying that we're apathetic about sin. It's just that we hear God's call to respond to people's sin the same way Jesus does. Not by judging it, but by coming and doing something about it. By sacrificing himself. As Mike said last week, by taking on the nature of a human, human being and humbling himself, becoming a servant and going to the cross. If anyone had a right to judge the sins of the world, it would be God. And instead, his response is to love us and to come and do something about it. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world, a famous verse, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But he goes on to say, For he did not come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. 
And that's what God is doing. It's not as if God doesn't have expectations for people. He has expectations for everyone. His arms are open wide. He's welcoming everyone into the kingdom. And the expectations are, do you want to celebrate who God says he is? And if you don't, then you don't want to be in the kingdom anyway. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't want to celebrate who God says he is. They don't care. And God doesn't just say, well, it doesn't matter. Just come in. He's saying, look, my arms are always open wide. And if you want, if you want to be a part of my family, you're welcome. And you'll learn and you'll grow And my spirit will help you and we'll take care of things along the way. But right now, just let me envelop you with my love and grace. And how in the world will people ever know that that is God's perspective toward them if the church isn't bearing witness to that? If the church isn't celebrating that God is who he says he is... And that means he welcomes sinners, you and me and everybody else. And he welcomes us not so we can do whatever we want, but he welcomes us to set us free from sin. He welcomes us to release us from the captivity of our sin. He welcomes us to transform us and to change us and to make us new. But only he can do that. And only people who want to honor God and who want to celebrate God as the great king will ever know that. And that is just as true about people who are outside the kingdom looking in and people who are inside the kingdom looking out. To be the people of God is to celebrate who God says he is. And it's our calling. I, I love playing tennis. I started playing tennis in high school. And it only took a couple of times out on the court. And I thought, I am hooked on this. I love playing tennis. And, and ever since then, I've I played tennis. I love watching tennis. I don't play or watch as much as I used to. But I wish I could. But I, I, I love the game of tennis. And, 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 and I love watching it. And in fact... Growing up, I never had any lessons playing tennis. And if you watched me play, you'd probably understand that. But, but everything I learned is from a few people who know more than I do. Or a lot of it came from just watching professionals on television. Now, I, I learned watching Bjorn Borg and Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe. And so I can also tell you how to throw a racket if you need that. <laughs> those guys. You know, I, I learned watching those guys, and I love to watch tennis. In fact, two of my favorite sports weeks of the year are when the tennis world converges on Flushing Meadow, New York, in Queens, and, and they all come together for the U.S. Open. And, and something about the, I don't know, it's the night matches or just being in America or what it is, but I just love watching the U.S. Open more than any of the other tournaments. So you can imagine my excitement when a few years ago somebody came to me and said, hey, I've got some tickets to the U.S. Open. Would you like them? Um, yeah, I think I would like that. What we didn't realize is that these were 
corporate tickets, we didn't realize how much how VIP corporate these tickets were. So we get there, we and, and because we have these particular tickets, we get into the stadium early. We go into this suite, one of those glass enclosed suites. I mean, the food was unbelievable that they served us. I mean, it was amazing. And and we got to sit out on this little balcony that overlooked the court and watch the tennis from there. And the tennis was amazing that night. It was it was just such an awesome experience. And and as I was sitting there, I'm thinking. I remember thinking to myself, I, I love watching the tennis. This place is amazing. The stadium and and I, the food is is awesome. I ate way too much, and and you know just the environment of this. But and then my human nature came out, and I thought, but well, kind of one of the things I really like a lot is being able to look down on the peasants who don't have these seats. <laughs> And just sort of feeling like, yeah, look at us. And you can almost see in their eyes, they look at you, wow, those people must be so cool. Those people are so special. I wonder how you get to be special like that. I wonder how you get to experience something like they are experiencing. And that came to my mind as I was reading this psalm. Because in a sense, this is sort of what the psalmist is saying. I know human nature is that you're looking down on people and saying, look at us, we are so special. Don't you wish you could be like us? And God is saying, get down there with those people and tell them, show them the kind of God that I am. And help them to understand that that they're just as special as you are. And that I love them just as much as I love you. And I want for them everything that I've done for you and more. I want everything for them that I want for you. I want you to celebrate me as the God that I declare that I am. And that's why I think it's important for the Israelites to keep singing this psalm. And why it's important for us to keep psalms like this in front of us. Because we need to be reminded again and again and again the kind of king God is. Is he the sovereign king of everything? Yes. Is he a God of holiness? Yes. Is he a God with expectations? Yes. And he is at the same time the God whose arms are open wide to the nations, to everyone, you and me and everyone else, and saying, I want you to be my children. And it's not about being a different class of people. It's about being so, having, having the heart of God so deeply implanted in us that people look at us, live with us, are around us and say, those people celebrate a, the kind of God I want to know. And as we come to this table this morning, we come to this table celebrating the God that is like that. We come and we celebrate the fact that we are people who have been offered grace and received grace and we're different, we're changed, we're transformed. And we come and we celebrate that God actually wants to use us as channels so that other people can celebrate his grace too. So today, as we come to this table, let's celebrate. Celebrate who God is. Celebrate God in our lives and God in this world And rejoice for what he's done for us through his son Christ and the whole world.
Gracious Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your peace and your power and for your grace upon us. Father, as we come to this table today, we pray that your blessing will rest upon the bread and the cup. We pray, Father, that that it will be food to our souls, to our hearts, our minds, every part of our being. Father, we pray that you will fill us with a spirit of celebration for who you are and for the privilege of what you've called us to be. We pray this through the grace of Christ. Amen.